In episode 151 of the Futurize podcast, the topic is how federated machine learning powers privacy. Our guest is Dave Bauer, who's the CTO of Boss AI. In this conversation, we talk about what federated machine learning is and, and why care about it. And we note its effects on distributed compute, on edge clusters, and on privacy, and on the emerging use cases that we see. Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trulnarna Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, and even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. Explore the new course Scale OS from Smolik Enterprises. You will work with award-winning CEO Stephanie Malik to scale your business, tapping into surprising sources of revenue. Get 10% off Scale OS with code Futurized. Just go to futurized.org slash sponsors and find Smolik Enterprises. If you wonder who she is, I know I did. Listen to How Executives Handle Crisis at futurized.org slash 129. What Stephanie has learned through a tough life, emotional stamina, and business acumen, she is teaching you in an accelerated fashion. Dave, how are you? I'm doing excellent. How are you, Tron? I'm doing fine. I thought we would explore a little bit your career and uh, some exciting things regarding federated machine learning, which uh, seems to be a pretty interesting approach. Let's let's talk about uh, you for a moment. You you have a PhD uh, from RPI, and you've uh, had a pretty illustrious career in, uh, involving some uh, military uh, operations and cybersecurity and a lot of hush. Hush, hush work, but then now you have your startup. Is that a fair way to characterize some of your career? It is. It is. Um, I did a couple startups when I was at Rensselaer, and um, you know they unfortunately didn't work out. The first ones uh, were trashed by the dot-com bubble in 2001. Um, but it was a good experience. It was a learning experience, and uh, we're doing much better this time. So I think, you know, fast forward 20 years, things are working out a little bit better. Hmm. Um yeah. What uh, brought you into uh, computing in the first place? Um, well, I have actually, I started programming in 1981 when my mother brought home a VIC-20 uh, computer. And it was probably the best toy I ever had. And I've been programming ever since. Uh, believe it or not, I was actually doing a little bit dabbling with AI and um, natural language processing back in the 80s on my Commodore 64 uh, after that, which was a much more powerful machine. And, um, you know, that love of computers stuck with me my entire life. I did try to move away from it in the 90s, um, but then I really went right back to it in 1998 when I entered uh, RPI or, or Rensselaer. And, uh, and, uh, and then I was grabbed by my PhD advisor, who was a year older than I was, and uh, said, look, you know, we can get this done. I know you're older, uh, but, you know, we can get this done if you stick with me. 
So my buddy, uh, Dr. Carruthers and I, we got it done in about three, three and a half years. And uh, we did some pretty amazing things together. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's explore that. I just wanted to point out that you made better use of the Commodore sixty four than I did because I, I seem to be played you know, playing too many computer games, and uh, there was one in particular that was simulating the London Stock Exchange, which uh, I was fascinated with. Well, it's interesting you bring up simulation because that is actually the primary focus of my PhD. Um, in my career, I really focused on an area called parallel discrete event simulation. And I think to the to date, um, our application uh, called Rensselaer's Optimistic Simulation System, or ROS, still holds the record for uh, the largest monolithic application that's ever been run. We did that at Livermore in 2013 on 9.9 million CPU cores, so just under just shy of 10 million processors used for for a uh, a single application, which is pretty tremendous. And then, of course, you know, that kind of caught the attention of some of my friends in, uh, in Fort Meade. And uh, I had a tremendous opportunity to go and work with the uh, National Security Agency and work on some very large scale environments. Um, I then got hooked up with some guys at Yahoo that were working on this little thing called Hadoop. And we started to try to port Hadoop um, and try to get it to scale. Uh, you know, at the time we were dealing with 2000 servers, we wanted to get it up to 10,000 servers for the government. Um, I stayed in the government. They went and started a little company called Cloudera. Um, and I missed my opportunity, uh, to join them. Uh, and then, uh, I went into the army in Aberdeen and I started to work with them over the last several years. We built out the first, uh, secure accredited certified cloud computing environments in the entirety of the federal government, um, and no less deployed them in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, and on a, uh, the 35th parallel in Korea. Hmm. Um, while I was doing that, I helped another company get off the ground, a company called Palantir. Um, they were friends of mine that uh, we were working side by side with. And uh, again, they took their own direction and started uh, Palantir. Meanwhile, I stayed in the DOD space. So long story short, fast forward 2016, 2017, I decided, you know, really watching all these people that I had worked with and respected uh, do so well in the startup space, I thought, you know, now is the time to really go off and do that uh, and try to do that myself. So I've That's... not quite had as much success as them yet, though. Well, we can talk about your startup in a second, but I, I wanted to to actually explore federated machine learning in yeah. and of itself because I, I don't think that it is that known outside specialist circles yet. And I don't know exactly why that is the case because, you know, intuitively, it's not one of the hardest concepts to grasp. And it makes so much sense to to me uh, as a as a concept. And certainly in the U.S., you know, everyone knows what a federation is. Can you explain it in just simple terms, what, what the whole concept is about and why we should really care about it? Yeah. So federated machine learning, um, really what we're doing with it is we're leveraging uh, multiple distributed compute environments in the process of training, testing, evaluating, and serving models, AI models. Um, many people, when they first come across federated machine learning, will come across TensorFlow 
Federation. And what Google is really focused on there is you have a, a file on your device and they want and you want to keep that file private, right? It contains a lot of your personal information. So typically when people are aware of federated machine learning, what they're really thinking about is a Google data center connecting to millions of phones. What we're doing is radically different. What we're talking about is bringing together multiple different compute environments, whether they're on-prem, in the cloud, or on the edge, and being able to leverage that data where it is. And as you point out, of course, uh, this is critical in areas like the, the European Union, where you have laws like uh, the GPDR, which require a user's data to stay within their home country and not cross borders. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, federated machine learning is a natural solution to being able to train a model across national boundaries, um, but leaving that data in place. That said, and I think what's really at the heart of your question, um, why hasn't this caught on? Why don't more people know about it? Why don't more people do it? Frankly, Trond, over the last few decades, we have been going in the opposite direction right? Everything has been centralized. Everything has been moving to the cloud. Um, You know, President Obama in 2013, 2011, maybe, I I can't remember exactly when, said everybody in the the, uh, U.S. government has to go into the cloud. Um, I know I was working uh, at the CIA with Gus Hunt when we purchased uh, Amazon in 2011 uh, for use within the CIA. Um, And so, that has been the trend throughout the knots, throughout the tens. Um, and now I believe it's going to start going in the other direction with not only GPDR, but the uh, California and uh, Chinese CCA law, which I'm not too familiar with. Um, but I think that is the trend. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess, I guess when a hyped up trend kind of reaches the level of policy of presidents and and people with big budgets you know they want to make big moves and they you know they adopt very simple kind of ideas so uh but but yeah i mean i'm referring to the fact that clearly sharing resources just logically makes a lot of sense and not moving enormous amounts of data leaving it on whatever device it is makes a lot of sense both in terms of environmental resource physical cost and and privacy can you talk about some of those aspects and what motivates you and and maybe also what the practical challenges are with with making these networks uh, uh, work for 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 and, and you know to to achieve those uh, those benefits that I mentioned here many times when we think about federated machine learning the very natural instinct is to think about it within an enterprise right so you think about a, uh, a big company uh, with distributed data throughout the world, right? A global enterprise. Um, what really gets me excited about it is one of the things that we're doing with uh, respect to privacy is enabling companies to be able to work together, right? Mm-hmm. So think of a bank, a credit card company, a travel company, um, an insurance company, being able to work together, being able to train models together, being able to learn from one another, but because of the privacy preserving techniques within federated machine learning, never having to share data between those different partners in the environment. Um, That's in fact what we 
develop with our own SaaS-based solution is an environment in which anyone can come into that environment and immediately begin to share not just models, but also share their data across them. And so then they're able to train horizontally, vertically. We're able to do federated transfer learning um, across those environments. It has tremendous benefits, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, in order to make all of that work, privacy is, is really important. Um, there are several techniques that we apply in order to keep data private. Um, we implement, for example, data level security. That goes beyond role-based access control. It is now author, uh, authorization-based access control, where every um, data point, every datum, if you will, uh, is protected by security markings, and then, to use some DoD parlance, disseminated or shared only with those um, that have the correct uh, access level. Hmm. Within the models themselves, we employ homomorphic encryption so that model weights and losses are never exposed um, in, you know, in terms of ag model aggregation and, and computing uh, the aggregated result. But then we also use uh, secure private communications and uh, differential privacy and then a uh, lesser known technique um, called Niao's garbled circuit to further obfuscate the modeling. So then uh, if, for example, anyone were to gain access to your model, you're not able to then uh, backtrack to the training data using only the weights and losses, which frankly, many people aren't aware is possible, but in, a, in the research realm, that is, is certainly possible to do. So you mentioned banking. Um, I've had uh, a, another guest on uh, speaking about federated learning and, uh, you know, Thomas Clozel of Okin in France uh, is using it for health data, which would seem like another very obvious use case because, well, especially in Europe, there are very, very strict laws uh, in terms of transferring health data between uh, countries and certainly out of out of Europe, so that's you know even beyond GDPR, and I think in the U.S. as well, you know, health data is you know is something, uh, of, you know, of its own category. What are in your mind the easiest and first sort of really big use cases? You mentioned banking, and then clearly the military, um, but but within you know within the industries, what what exact use case is it that you think is going to uh, kind of take off? Because I'm presuming that you think that since there is this move towards decentralized, uh, you know, analysis, this is going to kind of happen across the board eventually, but perhaps not right away. Well, I don't think this will necessarily be the, the, the use case that where FML will take off, but certainly within the area of healthcare, that is where our largest number of customers are. And being able to share electronic health records um, across providers and, and uh, payees and, and uh, insurance companies, et cetera, federated learning really makes a lot of sense. The other issue that you have in that space that is, it's not unique to that space, but I do think this is an area where federated machine learning will take off, um, at, at least in the, in the States, um, there are a large number of merger and acquisitions that happen. And you, and in particular in the healthcare space, where you have some companies owning tens of thousands of different hospitals and other healthcare facilities across the country, each one comes with its own IT stack, right? They all have their own database, they all have their own systems. 
when where we really get the most traction is very frequently we will go into a group um, that's gone through many of these acquisitions and mergers and they will say well we have to build a data lake what we refer to as a data swamp we have to normalize and cleanse the data check in with us in a couple years about ai and what we talk to them about is that they can actually start that process immediately because with federated machine learning, what we're able to do is tap into the data that exists at each of those locations without requiring the centralization, the normalization, and the cleansing to occur on a large, uh, you know, data data lake or data warehouse. Um, Interesting. Can we talk some details here? So let's first start with the, the interoperability argument. I'm curious, first off, you know, is uh, federated machine learning in any way starting to get standardized? Or are we talking here APIs within individual software companies that have switched to this approach? So I would argue that there are very little in the way of standardization within federated uh, machine learning at this point. I think it is just too new. Uh, that said, in terms of interoperability and integration with external systems, we certainly in interoperate with hundreds of different external systems. So whether we're pulling data or um, we are providing interfaces for uh, inferencing, uh, they're, they're pretty standard, right? You're talking about HTTPS, uh, you know, through a REST-based interface, and, and uh, you know, a JSON document for the record coming in and a JSON document containing the prediction coming out. Um, in between is all the proprietary stuff, right? Being able to switch between, say, a TensorFlow and a PyTorch and an XGBoost um, is the less trivial part. So that's where companies like mine come in because in addition to all of the uh, privacy-preserving techniques, you have to be able to provide all of this infrastructure. Keep in mind, right, you have to be scalable in terms of the data coming in, whether it's for training or inference. Uh, you have to provide not only uh, transformation pipelines for images, text, uh, and numerical tabular data, but you also now have to do that federated, right? So I have to I have, to have federated uh, fe feature engineering to go along with my federated model training. And then finally, uh, the model serving also has to be federated, right? It wouldn't be very helpful to train a model federated and then aggregate that model into a single point and put it out there on the web for training because you don't have necessarily access to that data any longer, right? Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier that we support both horizontal and vertical learning. What that means, horizontal is a simple case. Um, what I ask people to do is visualize in their mind a spreadsheet and you're cutting it horizontally. Some of the rows that fall above the line may exist in one data center. The rows that fall in and below the line reside in a second data center. That's horizontal learning. Now imagine your features themselves coming from multiple different disparate data centers, right? Maybe I have column ABC coming from data center A and columns XYZ coming from a second data center and labels coming from a third. That is a, a far less trivial case. It would not make sense during the prediction phase to aggregate that model into a single location because I don't have all of those columns of data. Go back now to a bank 
a credit card company and, uh, uh, you know, uh, a retailer, right? Now those columns, those features are coming from each of those three organizations. It doesn't make sense to aggregate that model, serve it locally in a centralized way and force them to centralize their data for inferencing. So serving also has to occur federated across the environment as well. So Dave, I think you may have answered my question because, uh, you know, typically when a new method comes along, a lot of firms will adopt the marketing approach at least that you know oh that's just another tool in a toolkit if you want that we can give you that too but you seem to be saying that this is quite if not radically different from other big data approaches it is different enough that this is not just something you can kind of add to your toolkit without really changing the the entire way that you are doing machine learning because you know machine learning is by now fairly commoditized i would say right there are very standard algorithms we're moving well we can discuss this but we're moving hopefully towards more explainability and i'm assuming clients want to know what type of approach are you using and why are you using it and what difference does it make but but i'm just curious you know is it the case that any old big data firm could sort of adopt this more like a tool in the toolbox or or is it significantly different you know in almost every aspect in many aspects it it is the same for the machine learning practitioner it feels very much the same they're they're working within a jupyter notebook they are importing a couple additional classes they're still using TensorFlow, PyTorch, and and other common libraries. Um, Where it starts to get different is at the infrastructure level, right? When you start to actually employ this within an enterprise, um, being able to share across enterprises, having data use agreements in place, having, uh, you know, in the DOD space, we we frequently have MOUs, memorandums of understanding in place between them. Um, implementing security models is not something that uh, many enterprise organizations are um, familiar with. Um, and so there are some new things that have to happen at the infrastructure level, at the data engineering level, um, as well as uh, within the, the modeling domain itself. But for the person who's actually writing the model, this is somewhat commoditized in the sense that you know, you're, you're going to direct, right? I want this part to run here. I want that part to run there. Otherwise, it's a pretty standard and straightforward um, modeling process at the technology level. I hmm. think it's, it's, it's at the enterprise level where things are, are, are maybe very different. So, and I don't know if that was a clear answer, but I no, this is this is great. Do you have some examples of how this has been uh, deployed beyond kind of uh, your your own company? Have you seen it um, deployed at scale anywhere? So, this actually did start out for us as a research project four years ago within the Army domain. Uh, The United States Army Military Intelligence Branch. Uh, was interested in employing it on on the battlefield environment at what are called forward operating bases. Imagine soldiers sitting on a mountaintop in Afghanistan. Um, The issue that they have when they're doing intelligence gathering, surveillance, reconnaissance, is they are collecting hundreds of terabytes worth of data 
But the problem is that they're stuck at a Ford operating base where they've had to bring their internet quite literally with them, right? They have an antenna on a truck. They have a generator they tow behind the Humvee that powers everything. They are lucky to have two to four megabits, megabits, so Commodore 64-like speeds uh, for an internet connection. Um, and they're also trying to run through that internet connection, you know, video calls with, you know, their, their commanding officer, but also with their families and email and many other things. So the challenge that the Army gave us back in 2017 was, what if you have no network? How can I learn strategies, tactics, techniques um, of my adversary with this data that I'm collecting on the battlefield environment? And so they, I can't, of course, divulge the precise number, um, but they are a fully federated environment at the edge uh, within the military intelligence domain. And of course, then other things beyond the obvious uh, privacy requirements for classification data come into play. Then resiliency starts to come into play. Um, connectivity starts to come into play. Even when you're not moving data, you are still moving model weights and losses, and you still have to handle the odd blip in the network, um, you know, when somebody bumps into the antenna. And so uh, building all of that in is really where we kind of cut our teeth on federated machine learning. And then, of course, uh, I think we released our commercial product on it maybe last, last summer. So even for us, it's very new, and we've been doing it for about uh, just about four years now. So, so I'm, other than that, I'm, I'm just I don't really know. Of any I, I'm just a little stuff. curious. Uh, so is it then? A, it's delivered as a service right now. Is you know the way you're selling it? It's a it, it's a, a sort of a, a combination of a consulting service and an and an sort of infrastructure as a service type model. Or well, we we provide the capability as a service. Um, or as something that can be deployed within an organization. So we have a very large uh, retailer in the United States, and they deploy it within their environment. We don't own it. We don't operate it. It's sitting on top of their cloud computing environments. Um, you know, of course, we provide you know infrastructure support and modeling services to them, but but they own and operate that federation separately from the federation uh, that we provide. There is, of course, this opportunity to interconnect between federations. So you can have privately owned and operated federates and federations connected to publicly owned and operated federations like our own. Um, so all, all of these are possible. Um, but yes, many of our customers do choose to own and operate their own private federations. Um, and, then, and then, of course, we have our own public one uh, as well. The, the typical progression process for us with a new customer is they will come into our federated environment. Um, they, will, they might provide us some less sensitive data um, to see what it looks like, to see, to get a realistic idea of uh, the timeframes involved in the development of federated models. And then uh, once they have a better understanding of what that really looks like for them, they will typically want to move it into uh, something that they own and operate. But Dave, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is perhaps a naive question, but I mean, this doesn't remove the need for cloud in terms of backup and such like. It, it simply 
solves some privacy issues, but it, it it doesn't exactly remove the need to duplicate your own procedure somewhere else, does it? I, I mean, well, this maybe it's a too too dumb question, but I mean, if you are one of those nodes and you have data on your own device, if you want to be secure and 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 make sure that if that device gets cracked or you you are in this army scenario, you still would need to have some sort of backup capability. You know, this federated system here is still as vulnerable as each node is vulnerable, or am I wrong? No, that is true. And we do implement a an open-sourced uh, NSA-approved cybersecurity architecture so that these environments are as secure as they possibly can be. Um, that not only extends to the cybersecurity controls, but it really takes a defense in-depth approach to the security within the system. That said, no system is invulnerable to attack. Um, they are all uh, vulnerable. And yes, that could at some point happen. Uh, there are not you know, separate private communications or privileges between federates within the federation. So somebody would have to hack individually into each environment. If environment were, were to be compromised, um, as you said, the data would have to, um, you know, could be restored from some external site. Frankly, we don't um, typically have that issue because what are we doing, right? We're not a system of record, right? We're not supporting a website with millions of users. No, We're I bringing get that. data in from databases, from S3 buckets, from JMS queues. And so... It, you know, if you came to me tomorrow and said, Dave, I have to shut down your federate, you got hacked, start over. I, I would just reestablish the connections to the to the uh, systems of record and, and re-pull the historical data into the environment and start over again. It's interesting that you brought out the concept of system of record. I wanted to move to another aspect that I know that you care about. Um, you know, low code or no code development is something that's, you know, getting a lot of attention for very good reason lately. You know, it's obviously something that has been available for quite some time to the regular office, uh, you know, productivity worker, you know, using uh, you know, word processing and, and, and spreadsheets and all the like, you know, these are low code systems where you don't really need uh, many skills beyond basic, uh, you, you know, ma math and, you know, sitting at an office type skills. Why, why is this suddenly coming into play with federated learning? Why, it doesn't immediately strike people that machine learning in and of itself, you know, is a low code approach. Why is that now facilitated in some way with, with federation? Is it because you have to simplify it so much to actually share the data that at some point it just becomes really, really simple? Well, it, 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 we have worked very hard to make it simple, but, um, I would say that for us, for me personally, no code, low code is crucially important within the field of AI and ML. As you said yourself, AI has become commoditized, right? We're all using the same algorithms. We're all doing the same things, thanks to companies that have put out these frameworks. Um, that said, that doesn't mean that it's tangible for a business user. That doesn't mean it's tangible for a subject matter expert. And so from the day that I started this company, what I have said to all of my eggheads that are AI and ML professionals, 
is you are not developing for the developer. You are develop. I encourage them to think of a nurse in a hospital, right? The reason why I pick on nurses is because frequently they are the most intelligent person in a healthcare organization. They know how everything works. They know where all the data is. They know how the systems work. They know how the data is collected. They know why a field is empty, right? For me, as a machine learning person looking at tabular data, I don't know why names are messed up sometimes. It seems to me like in 2022, we could have systems that you wouldn't have names like ABC123, but we're still cleansing those out of data on an everyday basis. Hmm. So if you can take this highly commoditized field of AI and put it into the hand of a nurse, put it into the hand of an oil rig worker in North Dakota, or, or, or someone of that uh, nature, someone who does not know Python or Rust, and, and give them a capability they did not have before, that to me is extremely powerful. Why is it important within federated machine learning in particular? Yes, a big part of it is that the actual process of building a model in a federated environment, querying across data, across multiple systems, doing the federated feature engineering, then finally doing the federated modeling and serving is tremendously complex, even for ourselves. And so we have tried incredibly hard to make it as easy as possible by minimizing the amount of code, by providing libraries that, that do the work for you, and really by providing visualizations that in, and, and, and uh, user interfaces that uh, enable anybody to do it, right? Hmm. We are still a long way, Tron, from my grandmother using it, right? That's kind of the thing we always talk about in the tech space. Explain it to your grandmother. If she can do it, if she can understand you, you've done a good job. We're still a long way from that goal in no-code AI, um, but that is certainly what we are shooting for. And I am a tremendous, uh, tremendously large believer in, in that. So that talk, is talk to where... me then about the, the the more about the future outlook for this kind of compute, because clearly, if your grandmother or or even nurses or or any other sort of operator category person who's out there in the field, you know, you mentioned military, if they can have access to even basic types of AI or machine learning capability for even just counting basic things that they're, you know, and, and looking at trends in data, that is immensely powerful. What are some of the other things that you foresee Federation uh, creating? I mean, you started out with supercompute. Is, is this also going forward a solution to supercompute for the every man, basically? I mean, I bought myself a enormously powerful computer here recently because, you know, I broke the other one uh, because of all the crazy stuff I was doing. But, you know, if I had access to a cluster of these kinds of very powerful computers and I could 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 use that, and I mean, that would be a, a great thing. Um, yeah, I always like to joke that, you know, it's been all downhill since I got my degree, right? Uh, so I did start in supercomputing and high-performance computing. We built some of the first Beowulf clusters in the late 90s. Um, when we got to big data, we started looking at just small numbers of computers, 2,000, 10,000. Um, and, and today with AI, um, you know, 
many times people are looking at how much compute they can squeeze into a single desktop. Um, they're looking to very expensive GPUs as the way to get things done. GPUs are fantastic. I started doing my first GPU programming in 2006 on uh, NVIDIA hardware. Um, but I can, I promise you, that is not how we will be doing AI in another two or three years. Um, in fact, uh, moving away from GPUs and specialized hardware entirely and getting back to commodity hardware, I believe, is, is where we will go. <coughs> well, you're, so you're telling happen. me that, and I just bought a 3080 from NVIDIA at great expense, but you're saying it's worthless in yes. three years? And what I'm telling you is that I can do much more complex processing, a much much larger on hundreds of terabytes on petabytes of data already. Um, I would never use, uh, you know, that, that equipment for, for, for large scale data processing, hmm. um, because there is an inherent limit built into what you yourself are doing on a single machine. Um, right. and being a distributed compute expert, of course, we want to leverage as many computers within a data center as we possibly can. And then across multiple data centers as well. And I will assure you that uh, within the military intelligence domain, we are doing much more than trend analysis and uh, basic counting. Uh, we are doing very complex image processing, right? Sure. Um, we are doing, um, you know, object detection, object recognition. Uh, we are doing, uh, you know, I can't necessarily say for what, um, but, you know, we all, all of the use cases within AI I either I have seen implemented uh, in production in the DoD space, or I myself have worked on within the DoD space. Well, I mean, computer vision has just had a tremendous advance, right? Over the last 10, yes. 7, 5, 3 years, you can count the months almost, right? In, in terms mm -hmm. of the, the ways that it, it has been deployed. One of the um, areas where we've really taken off, and this was really foundational for me, um, I've done a, a, a large amount of work within the area of, of natural language processing. And in 2012, we started to see machine learning translation models that, you know, for Pashto and Farsi and Arabic, they were, they were stuck down in the 20 to 30% accuracy range. Deep learning came in and overnight we were hitting 80, 90% for obscure languages. Um, what Google has been able to do what Facebook or Meta has been able to do with natural language processing is is really you know unbelievable. And for me, that that's why I moved into AI um, as quickly as I could because the impact that we were seeing in all of these other areas was you know really orders of magnitude beyond statistical techniques, regular expression, uh, pattern matching, etc. So I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that this is something that you're prepared to uh, to muse around, but you you, you seem to uh, be bullish on, on neural networks still and deep learning. A lot of people have said that that's actually a blind alley going forward, well, going yeah, far yeah. forward in the yeah, sense yeah. that it is enormously computationally uh you know well yes it does it, it does make some advances but it also has some problems regarding a, a topic i was going to ask you about which is explainability so i i guess it, it are there approaches that are compatible with the federated uh learning approach 
that are beyond deep learning or that just, I don't know, make more efficient use of statistical or symbolic uh, AI or, or some third approach? So if I may, I would talk to the research that we conducted as recently as, uh, well, we're, we're, we're doing it as we speak, of course, but um, it was most recently published at Supercompute in 2018. Um, we are looking very heavily at a technique that is commonly called reservoir computing. Um, so that would be perceptron-based spiky neural networks. Um, we did a 64,000 processor run on a uh, blue gene queue, and we simulated a network with billions of neurons in it. This is work that was really pioneered in the early uh, 2000s um, by, uh, I want to say his name was Gustafsson, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and it in my opinion, will be what comes after deep learning. So I agree with many of the other researchers that there is a limit to how far we will get with deep learning. I think we have much, much further that... that, that oh, I'm not saying we have reached it, but I'm. But I, I the argument I was going to try to make, and it's this is not, you know, I didn't come up with this, but, you know, we, we do certainly need a bridge before quantum computing and, and possibly during the first paradigm of quantum computing because it's going to be so specialized in the in the early days i mean we are in those super early days but even for a while it's you know it's pretty regular opinion to to think that it's going to be quite specialized in the beginning so don't we need a bridge is what people and, are and saying i think that's what the reservoir will be so we're, we're talking about echo state networks we're talking about liquid state machines uh, for your listeners that want to look uh, more specifically into that area but ultimately, in terms of the model of the brain, reservoir computing much cl more closely mimics or simulates, right, which is why I'm in this field, um, the, the actual behavior of the brain. Um, and so um, I don't know, I'm, I'm nervous that we're getting really far off topic, but, um, you know, for me, this is an approach that will... Um, Come, that will be that bridge. That, that will be that bridge from deep learning to quantum computing. And frankly, you know, aside from the fact that quantum computing is always just a decade away, and I've heard that now. I'm in my third decade of hearing that. Um, you know, there will there will take time for those algorithms to be implemented. You know, for large amounts of data to be apply to those algorithms. And those are also real problems that will have to be solved. So just having a quantum computer isn't maybe sufficient um, to do high quality predictive analysis. Hmm. Um, we, well, we just jumping back yeah. to uh, to Federation for a moment, yes. uh, I mean, w w if you just look at that particular paradigm, you know, in the next decade, what, what do mm -hmm. you foresee happening here? Are we talking a class of software firms that are going to start to, uh, you know, to implement this? So are you sort of saying that everyone's going to move to a federated approach? Where I would like to see it go, where I believe it's going to go, is that we are going to start to build ecosystems, ecosystems of models, ecosystems of data. Leveraging federated transfer learning, we will be able to transfer learning from one domain into another 
in these federated environments where the data already exists, where the models already exist. Uh, data will become a commodity within these environments just in the same way that the models have become a commodity. So really all that remains is for somebody to come along and create that ecosystem in which they can be shared amongst the different players in the environment, the different participants in the environment, um, and have all of that be plugged together and work together um, without having you know to go hire a PhD like me to do the coding. Right. I'm so glad you said this because I've heard so many times and it starts to annoy me. People who are like, oh, well, you know, algorithms are commoditized, but uh, but the data will always be proprietary or something. But it's it's just oh. so simplistic, you know, because no, everything, of course, can get commoditized. And if you start sharing data, of course, it's commoditized. I mean, this is pretty yes. logical. And many, there are many companies you would be surprised. I don't you know, I was surprised. Um, because we are developing what we call an AI marketplace that allows people to publish not just data, not just raw data, not just transformed data, but also models, right? Model source code, trained models, being able to publish and subscribe those within an ecosystem like this, which is why I'm talking about it. Um, and, you know, when I started to research it, right, there are many, many companies out there. They have built data marketplaces for use within their business ecosystem. Um, I don't want to mention any one company in particular, um, but a major oil and gas producer has built a data marketplace. They just went live with it last month for all of their suppliers to use. So it's private. It's not out there on the web. But believe me when I tell you, they have over a thousand companies participating in that marketplace. And because of their size and their scale, they force they're the, the people that want to do business with them to share information back with them. So these ecosystems are, I don't know what to call them, frankly. Tron, maybe you have a better word for it than ecosystem. Um, well, but, I do think we need a new word, right? Because ecosystem is, it means so many things. But, right. Uh, right. And it's but not it's a marketplace not a, in and of itself. I, I, I right. yeah. It's not okay. just the marketplace. It's the value that you get out of it, right? So in yeah. our space, you need, you require federated transfer learning. I've brought my data, but I don't have labels. That's where feder, federated transfer learning comes in. Hmm. Um, I have data, I have labels, but my data is very small, right? I'm not Google. I don't have a, a gazillion or a Google, you know, worth of search index results. What do I do? Federated transfer learning comes into play in those areas. This is really, even within non-federated AI, a rather niche or niche area, it becomes so important in the federated realm. It becomes really a, a crucial technology in the federated realm. I find it fascinating uh, to end on this note because the collaboration vectors that we're talking about here, they're, <clears throat> they're actually almost unknown, right? And, uh, and they depend on new types of collaborations that perhaps don't even exist yet. Because if, like you said, a big player opens up, then a whole new market uh, of relationships uh, you, you know, of relationships will, will also open up. So you, you, you can't kind of forecast this unless you actually know what, what the big players are doing, but also, you know, very interestingly, right? It's uh, if you are a niche player, it could just be that your particular set of expertise and experiences suddenly becomes a key to unlocking 
you know, value. And I find this so fascinating in this kind of new compute ecosystem. I don't know if you agree with that. I think where we agree is the platforms will exist and the resources will be shared and people will get tremendous value out of it. What they do with it is unknown, um, as right. you point out. So how people use TikTok, who knows? Uh, we learn that every day. Uh, we learn that in, in Europe today, how people are doing that. And so um, how people will use these platforms, I don't think we can know, but it will be very interesting to see it play out over the coming years. I agree, David. I'm so glad we got to speak and uh, thank you so much for uh, bringing a little bit of sense to this world that so few of us have really certainly done anything meaningful in yet. But I, I predict, uh, and I think with, with you, you know, within five to seven years, uh, this is not going to be so strange anymore. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, it was it was a very thoughtful discussion and I appreciate the effort that you that you put in. Thank you. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you for inviting us. You have just listened to episode 151 of the Futurist podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in any of Trond's products or services, feel free to check out futurist.org store where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Trond's books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. The topic of this podcast was how federated machine learning empowers privacy, and we talk about why care about it and noting the effects it has on distributed compute, on edge clusters, on its privacy-preserving features, and on the emerging use cases. My takeaway is that the future outlook for federated machine learning is that it takes a key role in facilitating supercompute, that it supports low or no-code development, and might become a linchpin for safeguarding privacy and ultimately will power novel user experiences such as immersive graphics. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 140, When Will Conversational AI Get Real? Episode 69, The Future of Quantum Security, or episode 30, The Quest for Artificial General Intelligence. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes, and if so, please message us. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network, where you can create multidisciplinary dream teams uh, and can explore speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring. And you can find Yegi at yegi.org, Y-E-G-I-I. To find us on social media is easy via Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.